Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome along to In Conversation, a Rugby Pass podcast. Scotty Stevenson with you. This is part four of the In Conversation series, talking to New Zealanders who have had an impact on our national game. And what a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast today, Ms. Melody Robinson. Good afternoon, Mel. Good afternoon. It is a pleasure to be here. Now, Mel, let me just outline your myriad successes as an athlete. Two Rugby World Cups, representative of the Black Ferns in 18 tests between 1996 and 2002. Also represented New Zealand women's sevens in Hong Kong and Japan. You then went on to become a journalist working in Parliament. Then you moved through to Sky TV where you served that organisation for, if I'm not mistaken, Mel, 15 years as a presenter, commentator, reporter and latterly as a communications executive, you've also graduated from the University of Auckland with a postgraduate degree in business, I think an MBA we call those, Mel, do we? Yeah, yeah we do, we do. So, in other words, you're flash. Well, no, all of what you've just said is the reason I've just taken off six weeks doing absolutely nothing. See? <laughs> <laughs> I think, burnout. <laughs> I th- well, I think you deserve a break. You're also a mother of two wonderful boys and um, a partner to uh, a very successful golf coach and former um, New Zealand golfer, Marcus Wheelhouse. So you lead a busy life, Mel. And uh, full disclosure here, we were also colleagues for 12 years at Sky Sport and we had an awful lot of fun, you and I. Yeah, we did. I mean, you sat next to me, um, and uh, I'm not sure if many people who listen to your podcast know, because obviously this is audio, um, but, you know, your what you call resting pitch face is very familiar to me, but I know that you're smiling on the inside, as you always told me. <laughs> I, do, I, do, I do have a problem with resting bitch face. I know you know me so well. <laughs> You know, I'm also I'm also terrible at late night wrestling because um, you've managed to pin me a couple of times while we've been on the road and uh, get a three count. Yes. So uh, you're a strong yeah. woman. I'm going to take you back, Mel, uh, today because I want to get a sense of um, how far you have come. Talk to me about your first involvement with rugby. Um, well, it's a it's a funny thing because I think for a lot of Kiwis, uh, we're similar in this and that we. Um, grow up watching rugby and for me it was the 1987 World Cup that was really significant. I think I was about 11 years old um, and that was my quality time with my dad and um, at the same time I fell in love with rugby and David Kirk who I met 
in my late 20s and realised he only came up to my chin. And also he uh, was very straight down the middle, a very serious man. So we never would have worked out anyway. So that was one of those fantasies that should ever meet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I watched that World Cup, I just thought to myself, oh, my God, I just want to be an all-black. And um, when you're a young, innocent, tomboy chip growing up in New Zealand, you don't actually realise that there's actually um, social... Uh, boundaries around certain things, particularly back when I was young, and girls were not all blacks. Um, so that's where my passion for the game started, and um, it wasn't until I got to Otago Uni that I actually got the opportunity as an 18-year-old to play. So it was a bit of a long wait. Talk to me about that opportunity, Mel, because you, you headed down to Otago for university. Uh, you were born in the Canterbury region, grew up in Little River, which is a wonderful place. But um, mm. who who introduced you to the game in Otago? Well, um, basically, we were at this place called Unicole. Um, we had Tane Randall there. Um, there were two other Māori blokes and me. We're the only brown people in the whole um, uh, place of 250 uh, university students. So that was pretty interesting. <laughs> and on the wall, uh, there was this notice that said, trial girl rugby players wanted to come down to Logan Park at on Saturday at midday. And I was, I was like, seriously beside myself. So my friend um, Nikki Fogden and I went down, and I'd never played rugby before, so you can imagine um, during a trial how ugly it was. Mm-hmm. I think I, I got the ball plenty of times, but sort of made maybe one metre, ran across the field, um, and it was a nightmare. But um, I loved it. It was so great. Who, who ever tells you how fantastic it is to physically dominate somebody on a sports field um, in a sport like rugby? So... I fell in love with it um, from there and, you know, it, it all just went from there. People like Sue Garden-Bashup, um, who, the late Sue Garden-Bashup, who was Steve Bishop's wife. She was one of my early coaches and she was um, a significant force for getting funding from the Otago Rugby Union and getting us a tour in the North Island and that was when Daryl Sue started to become the coach and he noticed um, some of us fit, skinny chicks from down south. And, you know, I was a flanker. I wasn't really the builder before back those days. Um, but he, thanks to Sue um, and that exposure, he ended up selecting a few of us, like myself, Annalia Rush and Farah Palmer, into the Black Ferns. And, and that's when our international career started, which was very cool. Although not many people thought girls should be playing rugby still back then. This was 1996, Mel, and women's rugby hadn't actually been around for a long time. And in fact, there had been a a World Cup prior to that, but it hadn't even been sanctioned by World Rugby or the International Rugby Board as it was known then. So uh, there was still plenty of work to do. Did you feel then that you were spearheading something when you played for the Black Ferns? Well, we we didn't know until the 1998 Rugby World Cup. because you're young and you're innocent and you're just doing what you love. Um, and we had some fantastic people like Daryl Suosua, um, George Scudder, um, Rob Fisher, who were big advocates and actually saw that there was a real potential in um, how fantastic women in New Zealand could be at the game. So um, Rob Fisher was obviously with New Zealand Rugby Union. They got us some funding and we ended up at that 98 World Cup. And it wasn't until we got there... Uh, that we started absolutely smashing people off off the ground, off the field, and we started getting all these facts, um, faxes through, and we were like, wow, this is amazing. School kids, it wasn't just our families, it was actually you know, people from the media, 
um, we were getting interviewed um, and it was live on TV1, the final, um, with Sue Garden-Bashup calling it with Keith Quinn. I mean, you know, it wasn't until that point that we thought, wow, this is something. People are actually recognising us for that hard work that we did. So um, that was awesome. I want to fast forward, if we can, because we'll, we'll come back, but let's fast forward 20-odd years. And now we have a Black Ferns team that is very much in the public eye. Their profile has grown enormously. Uh, the Black Ferns Sevens obviously have become household names. So do you guys take some credit for the way that you approach the game and the barriers that you were able to break down? Because there's a part of me that looks at the generation of players you played with, Mel, and uh, I could list off the names like Victoria Highway and Rochelle Martin, Anna Richards, Emma Jensen, Casey Robertson, and many, many more. Do, do you feel like the barriers you were able to break down have paved the way for what our women now are experiencing in the game? Yeah, um, 100%. I think that back when Daryl Suasua took over, um, he changed how women played rugby and it had an impact on how other international teams played. So he selected crossover athletes from other sports and he taught them rugby. So that was the first step and that's what they're still doing today. That's why the New Zealand Blackbird Sevens team um, is so good because they found those athletes from other sports as well as the rugby girls who came through. Um, and yeah, it was years of acting professionally, um, you know, showing that the women play quality rugby and it took a couple of decades um, before New Zealand rugby got on board with it and truly invested in it but it was because of that, um, you know, huge success rate, commitment, love and passion, and also incredible behaviour, um, you know, off the field, particularly people like Farah Palmer, um, who's shown um, leadership skills that, you know, pretty rare, to be honest. Um, mm. So, yeah, look, we, we know, we know. Um, we don't need the accolades. So it was nice to have that Black uh, Ferns capping uh, last year, the first one they've ever had. So, um yeah, that was a special moment. Talk to us about that night because uh, for those listening to the podcast who don't know the tradition that the All Blacks instituted some years ago uh, where players who hadn't previously received their cap are invited to ceremonies and are presented with their test caps. But as you said, no Black Ferns had ever actually physically been presented with test caps. So to have all of those ferns together in one room at a, at a pretty glittering evening by all accounts, Mel. What was mm. that like for those of you who had forged this road? Um, it was one of the most joyful evenings I think I've ever been a part of. Um, you know, you don't get to see many of these players. They're spread all across the country, but you have um, spilt blood and you've forged friendships and bonds with people, um, you know, over a plain um, test match rugby with them. And so it was like we had, you know, we had seen each other only yesterday, even though it might have been 15 years. So it was amazing and they all got glammed up and um, they were very excited. And I think, um, you know, they only kept the 98 um, World Cup team and then I think around about the first 20, so there's more to come. Mm. But the brilliant part was... Um, Chairman Brent Impey, who I respect and um, give a lot of credit for starting to representate rugby in our country. He was up there and he was reading through the names and there's some tricky Polynesian and Māori names in there and one of the ladies 
got fed up and she got her name called out. She grabbed the mic off him and corrected him and, you know, he's sitting there looking very sweaty. And then the last black fern off the ranks was me. You know, I was waiting um, to get my cat and I was like, God, am I, why am I last? And then Brent and Pete goes, and finally, Melody Robinson, congratulations, black fern number 69. And he just about choked. Everybody in the room laughed and I thought to myself, yes, I finally made it, number 69. <laughs> this is great stuff, Mel. This is great stuff. Uh, and and the, only you could be proud of this fact. I just I love that about you. You know, yeah, I reckon Farmer or somebody set me up with that one, eh? I, th- I think someone did. I think someone did. The the fun you had and the esprit de corps that, that you guys have in particular, and, and I've had the pleasure through you, particularly Mel, to meet so many of your former teammates, but there's a, there's a sense of collective pride in just having been a part of the game. You guys feel as special about representing your country as any male does with the All Blacks, I'm sure. Well, you know, it's always irked to me when someone says to me, oh, yeah, but it was only women's rugby. It's mm. not the same as men's um, because it doesn't matter back when I was playing that there were fewer top athletes playing women's rugby. That squad of 32 that I went to the 98 World Cup with in 2002 were as good as the full-time professionals. It's just that there were less of us back then. So, mm. yes. Every time we ran out, we, you know, um, if you talk about, remember that book Legacy that was written about um, the all-black culture and they were trying to give lessons of leadership for business? Well, I read that recently and a lot of that we were doing back then, um, you know, all those values. And actually we used the history of the all-black jersey um, as a foundation of what motivated us and what gave us values. Um, so, yes, we, we thought that we were exactly like the All Blacks, um, even though we didn't have the massive crowds or the big money, it didn't matter. You're in a black jersey. Parlaying your rugby career into a, a broadcasting career with Sky, and when you first arrived on the scene, um, just maybe elucidate us on how tough you found some of those moments because you were, for a long time, the only female presence in a very male environment. Yeah, um, look, I won't lie, it was tough. Um, And, you know, I'm kind of thankful that I was a super tomboy and, Mm. um, you know, I let a lot of stuff ride over the top um, because my theory was if I act really professional, don't sweat the small stuff, I will have longevity in my career. But in today's society, if some of that, you know, that stuff had to happen now, mate, it's it's different. I, sh- I would have called it out. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, when I started, I, I got put on the sideline. I think it was around about 2003 Super Rugby, and it was a quite um, a process to train you, you're just thrown in the deep end, it's got much better now um, and I didn't realise it at the time and I was only told last year by um, the senior producer who was um, running the cutter that when they told everybody in the rugby meeting that uh, they were going to use me for some games there was a lot of discussion and most of it was what are you doing and mm. um, this is the wrong move. And interestingly, um, 
it was a Senza. They had to tell the Senza partners and both Fox Sports and. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Super sport. We're like, no way. You know, we don't want a woman on our coverage because obviously it's an educational product. Um, and then I know someone from New Zealand, I might, you know, I might say who it was, but see, why have you got her? You should have X, Y, Z. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of opposition. And then uh, one of my workmates just didn't really like me. And I, I look back on it, and it's, you know, another bit with um, different philosophy on styles of life. I was a tomboy. I skid out socialised. I didn't think you had to behave a certain way because I thought um, being yourself and authentic, but obviously you've got to worry about context. You know, being young, I didn't realise that. And it really hurt this person and he made my life pretty difficult. So um, mm-hmm. all my friends in broadcasting would tell me what was going on, but even though they were trying to help me over six months, it got so bad that I couldn't sleep. You know, I couldn't sleep. Um, I did go to my boss, Kevin Cameron, and I asked him what to do. And he was incredibly supportive Um and it worked out um, that, that, you know, we had a really good professional relationship, that person and I, but um, it was tough because I was a young girl um, and I was mm. by myself, as he said. So thank God to people like Kevin Cameron, Andrea McVeigh, who was actually a producer at the time, um, Brendan Butt, and um, Andrew Fife, who I guess believed in me. So yes, I lasted, but man, not many um, girls got much of a shot over you know that first decade that I was there and I'd see women come in the mm. guys who were my mates and say oh, what the hell does she really know about sports and then there was this um, it was conscious bias to be honest um, mm. against them so even though they might have other great attributes which is they would make people relax in interviews they could do um, brilliant fan um, inclusion type interviews um, they had other great attributes because they weren't um, X all blacks or black ferns or really knew the statistical history of the game like way back in the past years ago. Um, they were instantly popped and would usually get dumped after a year without much explanation. Mm. And it really preyed on my mind. Mel, I might just get you to get out of the wind. I don't know if you're going to get blown away there, but um, oh, that's I'm, very, very... I'm trying to avoid trying to avoid my children from they're not yelling in the background. Oh, that's okay. All children yell at you. That's what they that's what they're there to do. <laughs> But um, don't okay. don't worry about them right now. I'm just more worried about okay. listening to your stories instead of listening to what sounds like a horrific gale blowing through Ellerslie at the moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you also got the chance, Mel, to uh, commentate rugby, and uh, from my experience, you can do all the reporting in the world, 
and uh, no one will really notice. But uh, when you put your voice on a rugby commentary, uh, that's when uh, <laughs> that's when people will really let you know what they think of you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you, I mean, you were you were the first in the world to to do this, the first woman to commentate professional rugby, first class rugby. Um, and we've now gone on to the next generation with Ricky Swinnell, who uh, was the first woman to commentate Super Rugby. Uh, at the time, were you nervous about how you approached the game? And, and, and I guess what I'm trying to say is more nervous than perhaps uh, a, a bloke would have been, given what was at stake? Uh, I I was definitely nervous. Um, yeah, Chilling my pants and do you know the interesting thing about it was that very first commentary I did I made one mistake it was um, the quick throw and door and the next day on Radio Sport I got absolutely slammed and interestingly Martin Devlin was a host and he stood up for me which was quite nice because <laughs> I've heard him say some pretty interesting things about female broadcasters lately but anyway um, <laughs> look it was hard and so the more you got criticised, the more, um, I guess, overly conscious you got about preparing and being safe. And you, it, it took a real long time. I reckon it took me a decade before I really became a skilled broadcaster who could be my authentic self as well as be confident in my rugby analysis, which is crazy. And that was all because of that intense criticism I got. Mate, I'd won two rugby world cups. I'd trained as a journalist. I was as qualified as anybody else to be there, but um, it was hard. But guess what? I'm so thankful that um, I did stick it out because it has made it much easier for women coming in now. So Mm. isn't that great? No, it is. It's fantastic. And while we're on the subject, recently you went away uh, across to uh, the Women in Sport Conference uh, Symposium Mm -hmm. with, with ESPN and... Uh, had a great time there. We've t- chatted about that before, but uh, you went a step further, and when you returned to New Zealand, you decided, I'm not just going to talk about it, I'm going to do something about trying to even up the coverage, the broadcast and media coverage of women's sport. So you created, uh, with the help of some uh, very dear friends, The Wonderful Group. Explain to us what it's about. Yeah, so um, it's pretty simple. It's more diverse, more empowered, more women in sport media, and one of our um, aims is, of course, to make sure that um, women's coverage of sport um, improves. And um, I guess the first thing is that, you know, the more women I would talk to, and it, it wasn't just me, I was the founder, but men, I've had, you know, the Ricky Swinells, um, Jenny Wiley from the New Zealand Netball is also on our board, New Zealand Olympic Committee, you know, they're fully engaged as well. So it was a big group of us, and it was just the right time and moment. Um, and so we set it up, and the first thing I did was go around to the big media companies and say, okay, you've got one female sports reporter, you've got 44 men, why? Mm. Um, why is coverage only specifically data-based or analytical or traditionally news information? Why can't you vary it? So some of the research I saw at ESPN, it was with um, just under 3,000 um, of their audience and it showed that the female audience get enough of the data but they want more of the drama, they want the stories, they want the male athletes to be humanised, they want less statistics, more explanation and they want the female athlete stories to inspire them or motivate them. And interestingly, the traditional male sport audience agrees. Mm. So why wouldn't you look to include your whole entire audience? That was a message I gave and 
TVNZ, Sky TV, MediaWorks, um, NZME, Stuff.co, um, and now all of the other ones have come on board and they agree with me. And so they've become our partners and we do mentoring programs. Um, we do sessions uh, with people like uh, Dr. Lester Levy for leadership. And the other thing that we want to do is not just bring more broadcasters and more coverage of women's sports, but we want, uh, would like more females involved in the editorial decisions when it comes to sport broadcasts as well. There's, there's, uh, there's about two. There's Susan McFadden at Newsroom, and I would argue that Kate Slater is probably the other one at TNZ. Mm. So two females contributing to sports broadcast decisions or editorial decisions is not many. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a crazy imbalance, that's right. Are you seeing results, though, Mel, uh, through the program? Oh, yeah, look, it's been amazing. Um, you know, the number of female sports journalists last year that received awards at the Journalism um, Awards evening, um, the ones that went through the mentoring program, I think we had 22. Uh, we had over 30 female faces over 12 months on the Sky Sports platform, and Sky has been um, really good at getting diversity on screen in terms of um, more female reporters. Um, and obviously Ricky coming in there too. So it's really positive. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not down in the dumps about it. I'm just saying, hey, for the women in the group, we're going to um, get ourselves to a better level so we can actually um, have the skills, the mindset, the leadership, everything they need to be ready to put our names in the hat when the jobs do come up. Mel, one of the charges uh, still levelled, if we can go back to the playing field here, uh, one of the charges still levelled about women's sport and, and particularly women's rugby, and I'll, I'll focus on that because that's your background and, and it's certainly the sport that I've covered most over the last decade, is that it's just not commercially viable. So why invest in something that's not going to give you a return? It's a convenient argument for me. Um, but I guess there is some truth to it. And if I can play devil's advocate at the moment, what do you see is the return on the investment in the women's game financially, uh, first of all, and then secondary to that? And how do you start to grow the revenues produced by women's rugby in what is a very commercial environment? Um, Look, my thought on this, and others might not agree with me, is that... um I feel that often when commercial sponsors or broadcasters look at women's sport, they use a traditional business model approach and that's all about what profit, what revenue can they bring in. And when it comes to broadcasters, that's all about the audience um, or in particular viewer hours um, if you're talking about Sky Sport. So when you get newer sports or smaller sports, their viewer hours are not going to be able to compete with the likes of All Blacks or cricket um, or the Silver Ferns test matches because they're new, because they're growing. So for me, that argument is this is a growth opportunity, so you have to actually look at it in a different way and you have to invest in it to get the revenue and the profit down the line. So I think a great example is when John Follett set up um, with New Zealand Netball that brand new ANZ Premiership Championship, you know, way back when, 19, I don't know, early 2000s or something like that, maybe late 90s to be honest. Um, he had the vision and foresight to know that this was going to be um, something significant and um, for women's netball players being paid and having a broadcaster having the faith 
um, to put in a new competition like that, more of that needs to happen. So for this new professional competition um, that will probably be coming in in 2020 under the New Zealand Rugby Union, uh, maybe they need to look at it in a completely different way than they look at the All Blacks. Um, you know, it's it's a different style of rugby. It's as entertaining. You can see the numbers of women's players are growing. They're the only growth area in New Zealand rugby, in fact, in the, in the world. It's women who are leading the growth. Um, sponsors starting to get really interested in them. And um, my MBA research paper was actually on that, and I found that, yes, New Zealand big corporates do want to sponsor women's sport, but it's the way they present their sponsorship um, props uh, that has to change. They've got to include data, they've got to align with strategy, and they've got to bring these stories into the companies. Mm. So I think that we're on the cusp. If you look at at women's sport, particularly women's rugby, as a growth opportunity as opposed to oh, how many people are watching it now, well, then you'll have a really good business case. Mel, finally, on in conversation today with you, I want uh, you to go through your vast database of players you've played with, teammates you have had, and maybe tell us who was the toughest and who was the craziest. Um, oh well, most people would say that I might have been the craziest back <laughs> in the day. <laughs> um, yes, I, I did actually get warned once by Dale Sewer so if I dropped my pants in a bar again, I'd be dropped from the Black Ferns. And so he took me to the Hong Kong Seven with the New Zealand team. And I had all of my team around me getting very merry, including Annalia Rush, who fell down, um, you know, the the seats where everybody was. And I looked over, and he was at the other side of the stadium with the binoculars trained on me <laughs> to make sure that I could get up to him. How the people around me that were? Um, so yeah, probably I was I was up there. I've matured. I've grown. You know, much more conservative. Oh yes, you have. But I. Yes, of course. Um, look, I, I, I want to put a big ups to Anna Richards. Um, someone who played, what, two decades for mm-hmm. New Zealand. Uh, she was the brains trust of that team. She was one of the best tacklers you'll ever see, which, you know, first fives are not necessarily known for being um, great defenders. Um, she really brought others along with her. She gave her IP. She would train other first wives who were with the team, and she was very generous um, mm. with her knowledge. I think, to me, she's still one of the greatest icons of the game. It kills me that at the moment she's um, out of work. She is a professional rugby coach. She can't get a break. I think it's just crazy. Um, and I also think I really love her to be recognised more by New Zealand Rugby Union and, and taken to things because... You know, her and Farah Palmer were the two that um, probably had the biggest, biggest significant effect on the women's game uh, over the last couple of decades. Yeah, well, Mel, 1996, you started your Black Ferns career. It's 2019 and still not a single women head coach in our provincial game for women. Still some way to go, yeah. isn't there? Mm, there is. <laughs> there is. But always, we always have a positive outlook on that things will change, and I think they are. Well, thanks to people like you, they are, Mel. Mel Robinson on In Conversation, a Rugby Pass podcast. Thank you very much for your time today. No worries.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.